Welcome to our continuing discussion of Simone Dong's Individuation in Light of Notions of Foreign Information, Volume 2. We're reading the text, The History of the Notion of the Individual, uh, which we started last week. Um, so we've seen the pre-Socratics, um, and Simone Dong um, generally is taking the, um, the sort of interpretive lens uh, on the pre-Socratics uh, is this opposition between um, between the order of simultaneity and the order of succession or um, duration, uh, and and so um, this is a fairly traditional um, interpretation of the pre-Socratics, um, like the opposition between Parmenides and um, Heraclitus, in particular, as as the order of being and the order of becoming. Uh, is a, a traditional one, um, uh, but he's also he's talked about um, the Ionian uh, physiologists um, as having a sort of uh, primordial unit unity of um, being and becoming um, that sort of precedes the the split between the two that we find uh, in later pre-Socratics, um, and and then we talked about how. Uh, Heraclitus has um, this sort of, uh, so his doctrine is not just a doctrine of becoming, um, but it's a, a doctrine of the unity of, of opposites, including the, the unity of being and becoming. Um, and Simon Don talks about um, these radical Heraclitians that, that Plato makes reference to, like Cratylus, who, um, who held that uh, it was, in, or that uh, language should be used in such a way that you never uh, assert any anything has permanence, or you never speak in such a way that you are sort of presupposing the permanence of any entity, because everything is constantly changing and flowing, and so uh, we have to speak in a way that reflects that. Um, and um, Simon Don points out that this sort of displaces the contradiction from the the uh, unity of opposites that we find in Heraclitus himself to um, contradiction between the spoken language and um, the reality in which there's this constant flux. Um, so what ends up happening is that we sort of become uh, we we sort of lose the possibility of expressing anything determinate. Uh, everything we say seems to uh, presuppose some uh, fixed entity or some fixed concept, uh, and and so it 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 becomes hard to understand how we can even say anything at all if we have to avoid um, asserting anything fixed or or permanent. Um, and so what Simon Don uh, his philosophical project as a whole, or one of the major motivations for it is to develop uh, an understanding of the unity of being and becoming that is not subject to this type of um, impossibility of speaking. Uh, so it's going to be a unity of being and becoming that we can actually express in, in linguistic terms, uh, um, that we can speak and understand rationally. Um, so that's that's the sort of motivation for um, for Simon Don's philosophical project, uh, and we also saw the brief um, look at uh, the atomists, Lucippus and Democritus, um, and um, 
they have this their the doctrine of atomism is one of the um sort of targets that Simon Dong sets up in the introduction that we read in volume one uh to individuation itself. Um and so he takes it that in the atomistic doctrine, the only real individuals are the atoms. Uh the each atom is an unchangeable um entity that is uh perfectly individuated, uh, it's distinct from every other atom. Um, and then composite beings, beings that are made up of many atoms uh, joined together, uh, they have only a sort of relative individuality. Um, so they, uh, they are uh, individuated to some extent, but they're constantly changing in terms of uh, uh, which atoms make them up. So you can think of uh, uh, the food you eat gets incorporated into your body, and so your body um, in incorporates uh, other atoms that belong to other bodies. Uh, and then, um, so the the individuality of a composite body is only a, a sort of relative individuality compared to the absolute individuality of the atom. Um, and then, uh, oh, and I, I should also mention... Um, uh, Anaxagoras, who um, we saw uh, a little bit before that, who talked about um, this sort of uh, homogenous uh, substance out of which everything is uh, extracted. So for, for Anaxagoras, everything contains uh, a portion of everything else. Um, so bone contains blood and blood contains bone. Uh, and we just don't notice all of these different things that are contained in everything uh, because of the small quantities. Uh, and then there's a, a sort of second principle, which he calls noose or intelligence or mind, um, however you want to translate that, um, which is um, responsible for extracting different substances out of this sort of primordial um, mixture of substances. And, uh, so here is the sort of the first time that we have uh, uh, a sort of dualism, uh, which Simon Don assimilates to um, hylomorphism, the doctrine of form and matter of uh, that's uh, associated with Aristotle. Uh, and so for Simon Don, this doctrine is sort of the um, the Anaxagoras' doctrine of of nous is sort of the starting point of the hylomorphic theory, which is the other main target that um that he uh uh criticizes in the introduction uh of individuation right so that's uh more or less what we saw last week uh, and then this week we'll we'll start uh on the, the section on socrates and plato it's uh fairly long so i don't think we'll finish it today uh but um as i i mentioned i think when we were sort of getting started on on uh reading the um this text the history of the notion of the individual uh what's uh, particular about this text or um this interpretation is that simon don sets up an actual um opposition between socrates and plato in a way that is not that uh common in the secondary literature i think uh so he doesn't take socrates just to be a sort of mouthpiece of plato's opinions um he's going to distinguish between Plato's position and uh, and Socrates. So we'll see that as we go along. Uh, 
Okay, so I'll read uh, a page or so and then we'll go around as usual. Socrates and Plato. The notion of individuality takes on several aspects in Plato, but after the first dialogues, a veritable evolution takes takes shape that brings the problem onto a physical, metaphysical, and political terrain. Whereas in the first dialogues, the interest of this, this problem was mainly ethical. At the same time, what is primordial is no longer the temporal dimension of the individual, but its dimension of simultaneity, that which allows it to actually insert its structure into the structure of the city and participate in the latter. The example of the exceptional individuality of Socrates, who is barely integrated into the city, but who has a direct participation in immutable values like justice, is primordial from the start. The individual is this singular, irreplaceable, amazing being that paralyzes with his presence, like an electric eel with its stinger. This being has a destiny more so than a place. He wants to escape from the earth, and if he accepts remaining on earth, this is by comparing himself to the beasts among other domestic beasts in the pen that the gods have constructed for humans. The individual lives as uh, sorry, the individual lives as he must when he sticks to his destiny, i.e. when he is not in contradiction with himself. By remaining at Athens when he could have gone elsewhere, Socrates accepted in an implicit contract to obey the laws and to respect them. The unity of the individual, his coherence with himself, is essentially founded on the steadiness of this life throughout successive moments. Socrates is not just faithful to the implicit contract that binds him to the city, he is also the one who knows how to evoke again through myth certain things that seem forgotten or out of season. His order and his continuity are deployed according to the temporal dimension. For the present, he lives so little according to current events that he is nowhere and everywhere, from nowhere and from everywhere. Atopos is the deeply ambivalent qualifier that his enemies applied to him and that Plato could also attribute to him in his first dialogues. This Atopos presents all the paradoxical characteristics that reveal veritable individuality in his rapport either to societies, to institutions, or to intellectual modes. In the name of the old Athenian spirit, uh, Aristophanes attacks him as a sophist. Plato shows in him the adversary of the sophists, attacked by those who reproach him for not being able to defend himself when he is accused before the tribunals. This being of contradictions is coherent only according to a temporal order, not according to a system of different successive actualities. Knowledge itself is something that is not an integral part of the system of actuality. Knowledge is buried within the deepest recesses of the individual being and the purest part of himself. Only contradiction in the sensible form of pain or the logic of the dialectic can can prevent the individual being from remaining in the pure system of actuality and force him to seek reminiscence in it, like the forgetful slave questioned by his master. Socrates only sends back to the sophists the young men who do not have within themselves a veritable richness of interiority and cannot give birth to any truth, even if they are entrusted to this midwife of minds. Uh, Yeah, let's stop here. yeah, this is one of these uh, giant paragraphs that we've come across uh, a few times. Um, right, so he's starting out um, with this sort of portrait of Socrates as this um, exceptional individual. Uh, and this was sort of the um, the understanding of Socrates that uh, contemporary Athenians had, uh, that he was um, a sort of... Um, strange person, um, that he he wasn't involved in politics in the way that most uh, citizens of Athens were. Um, and he sort of went around and uh, asked people questions like, what is justice or what is piety? Uh, and, and 
sort of kept pestering people to define these terms uh, and uh, eventually was put to death um, basically for just annoying people all the time. Um, uh, and um, he, so he he's sort of one of the early, um, I guess, personalities that we can identify in history um, that he's depicted as um, sort of a, a distinct personality in a way that a lot of other um, historical figures are not. Um, so we know things about like his uh, his temperament and um, uh, his behavior in different uh, circumstances and, and all kinds of things that we don't necessarily know about a lot of other historical figures. Um, and uh, so Socrates, um, so this, this, um, this term atopos, so meaning uh, not belonging to a place. Um, so even though he's an Athenian citizen, he doesn't sort of fully belong to Athens in the way that um, Pericles or some other uh, political figure uh, would would belong to Athens, and um, it's this sort of out of placeness that um, that makes Socrates into this uh, individual figure in a way that other uh, people belonging to the same uh, intellectual circumstances are are not individual figures in uh, in the same way, uh, and so we'll see as we continue reading here that. Um, this uh, sort of individuation of Socrates has to do with um, the way that he um, sort of extracts himself from the the realm of the everyday opinions um, uh, through the art of dialectic. So by continually asking questions and um, sort of bringing to light contradictions that uh, other people were sort of uh, not uh, not aware of or sort of allowed to uh to subsist without sort of trying to deal with them uh so he's going to um ask people what what justice means and then ask them further questions once they give a a, a sort of attempt at a definition and then those people will end up uh contradicting themselves and uh at least um uh so Socrates um, famously says that he uh, uh, only knows one thing, and and that's that he knows nothing, um, uh, and and so he takes it that at least um, knowing that certain definitions of of justice or piety or whatever are not good definitions. So being able to refute these uh, understandings of justice or or knowledge or whatever the term is, uh, this at least gives him. An advantage over the people who think that they know what justice is, uh, and so this is um, sort of the um, quasi-skeptical attitude of Socrates in some of the Platonic dialogues, where he's sort of just uh, he doesn't really advance a doctrine of his own, but he he um, questions other people's assertions and sort of forces them to contradict themselves and admit that they actually don't know what they're talking about. Uh, and so this this uh, Simon Don takes this to be um, uh, a particularly um, or or he takes this to be characteristic of Socrates as opposed to the uh, the Platonic doctrines that come in in other dialogues that we'll see as we continue reading.
seems like this the idea of uh socrates's placelessness is meant to contrast with uh the structural conception of the individual for plato later on which in which the individual seems to be uh sort of defined by its place but i yeah, guess I think we'll talk right. about that later yeah that will we'll, um we'll come to that uh, a little bit later when we get to plato's doctrine of um of the ideal city um but yes so for plato there's this understanding of um the individual as being inserted uh or or the way simon only presents it here uh, is that in plato's uh republic which he takes to be a later uh dialogue um in the republic there's this um uh sort of uh, a caste system that's presented as sort of um, uh, a necessary component of the ideal city so that uh, each person has a particular role to play in the city and which is divided into these different groups of people that have different roles uh, and then um, each individual is assigned to the the place that corresponds to their natural aptitudes uh, and and so I think that's right that um, Socrates is the type of person who would certainly be very difficult to assign to a, a place in Plato's ideal city. Um, and, and yeah, so there's a certain irony in the fact that uh, uh, Plato takes Socrates to be sort of the, um, the key intellectual figure um, of, uh, of Athens of his time. Uh, and at the same time, his, his doctrine of the city which he sort of puts into Socrates' mouth is one in, in which Socrates would uh, have a hard time finding a, a position. Um, but yeah, so we, we can talk about that more when we get to the section on uh, Plato's doctrine of the city. Okay, so let's go on to the next uh, page or so, if someone else would like to read. Sure, I can go. Oh, go ahead. Uh, the art of Socrates is to draw the individual being out of the system of actuality that absorbs him by way of an interrogation that embarrasses him. Like his mother, Fenerit, um, who knew with song how to excite or calm the pain of women giving birth in order to hasten or delay labor, Socrates knows with speech how to stretch or relax the effort of his interlocutor towards the truth, which is not yet elucidated. This necessary contradiction of the individual by himself, this opposition to oneself, for the veritable dialectic does not require a contradiction between the propositions of interlocutors but between each of the interlocutors and himself, decants and reveals the individual extracted from all the dregs. Plato said later that the great king himself, if he were not contradicted, would remain impure to the bottom of his heart. Opposition to oneself is a purification and a rediscovery of oneself beneath the easiness of present appearances. Sensations and the habits of everyday life hide the individual from himself, isolate him from himself with a screen of illusions. The physics of Anaxagoras uproots man from the effort in which he can turn toward himself. The act of opposing oneself is the most primitive form of action upon oneself, and it turns the individual into a being who not only is and thinks objects, but who knows that he is and who thinks himself. The positive form of this return to oneself, which is expressed in the formula inscribed on the pediment of the Temple of Delphi, Know thy seotin, know thyself, requires, as its condition of validity, the preliminary existence of the power to deny oneself, to be opposed to oneself, to doubt oneself. Socrates attributed the, uh, to his daimon certain warnings, 
which were always negative and took the form of inhibition or refusal, and which intervened every time he risked allowing himself to be carried away by a momentary impulse, or to succumb to the entreaties of his friends by ceasing to be himself, like at the moment of his death, when the boat that should have delivered him from his fate had just landed near his prison. An order according to time that detaches from the order, according to the instant, intervenes in this splitting into self, and daimon, that makes possible action upon oneself, and then self-knowledge. Moral individuality is not part of the system of actuality. This first splitting results in a second, that of the soul and the body, which no longer have the same destiny. The body is the sign and tomb of the soul, soma sima. Plato did not add features, of which Spintheris makes us aware, to the portrait that the contemporaries of Socrates have left us in conformity with this evocation. The extraordinary power of Socrates, the force of his wrath, and his singular ugliness. Socrates was an exceptional being for his contemporaries. When he was for himself, he was for others. Attached, by, attached to the Athenians by the will of the gods to stimulate them like a gadfly would stimulate a horse. Um, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so here he's, he's continuing this um, sort of portrait of Socrates, and he's making reference to um, a number of uh, statements that Socrates makes in, in some of the uh, Platonic dialogues. Uh, so I forget which dialogue this is, but he... Um, Socrates, Socrates compares himself to, <clears throat> to a midwife um, uh, because his mother was a midwife. Um, uh, and so this, in the same way that the midwife uh, sort of uh, regulates the labor, um, uh, likewise, Socrates regulates the sort of giving birth to a new idea or to a, a new thought. Um, he he sort of um by asking questions and um sort of interjecting in in the way that he does he sort of pushes the uh, interlocutor towards uh, a new discovery um and so this this role of contradiction um uh, so it's it's not so much um uh, a logical contradiction in the sense of two opposed uh, propositions or a proposition and its negation. Um, it's more um, a sort of contradiction of uh, one person by another in in uh, a conversation, uh, and and then what that brings about is uh, a contradiction of of one of the interlocutors with themselves. So they begin by saying justice is X, uh, and then Socrates keeps asking questions, and then they end up saying okay, well, now I see that justice can't be X because uh, whatever. Um, and uh, and then they, so they, they contradict their initial statements, their initial understanding of whatever the topic is. Um, and so this, this work of uh, contradiction um, is a, a sort of self-knowledge. So um, we start in this position of having, uh, of being ignorant of ourselves, of, uh, uh, of our own um, understanding of key concepts. Uh, and then it's only through this um, dialogue or, or dialectic that we um, come, come to realize that we don't fully understand these concepts um, and that we are, are ignorant of, um, of how these concepts work. Uh, and so 
learning about our own ignorance is a, a form of learning about ourselves uh, and coming to know ourselves. Uh, and then Simon Don talks about here this, um, what Socrates calls the daimon. Um, so it's this uh, uh, voice or um, sort of uh, interjection that Socrates says that he hears whenever he is about to do something uh, that doesn't sort of um, fit with his uh, mode of life, I guess we can say, or or his spirit or something like that. Um, so he he claims that he he hears a voice that tells him not to do something, uh, and and it's always a, a prohibition or a negative statement. It, it never tells him you should do X, but it it, it tells him don't do Y. Um, uh, and so, for instance, um, in uh, I believe this is in uh, the Phaedo, um, possibly uh, I may be wrong, um, but um, they the other interlocutors talk about how they had planned to um, allow Socrates to escape after he was um, condemned to death. Uh, so they, they had a, pl a plan to break him out of jail and um, uh, get him out of the city. Um, and uh, Socrates refused to go along with this plan because he, he, um, he argues that um, he has to obey the laws of Athens. And so if the Athenians have voted to have him put to death, then he has to uh, follow that um, uh, decree. Um, so um, so this, this daimon is a sort of um, uh, principle of moral individuality. So it prevents Socrates from doing something that is contrary to his moral nature. Um, and uh, and so this um, so Simondon takes it that this um, split between the Socrates himself and his daimon is a sort of uh, sort of the cause of uh, a second form of splitting within the ind individual that is Socrates, which is the split between body and soul. Uh, and Socrates um, in uh, several different dialogues, he he talks about the importance of uh, the soul as opposed to the body um, and the body as being a sort of um, um, uh, a tomb of the soul um, is the term that he uses. So it's, it's the soul is sort of uh, imprisoned in the body and death is a kind of liberation of the soul from the body. Uh, and um, there are, there are dialogues. Um, uh, I forget. I think this is also, no, this is in the Phaedrus if I remember correctly. Um, he uh, he talks about um, the life of the soul after death and how certain souls are reincarnated in uh, in animal bodies and other souls are reincarnated as human beings and and so on. Um, uh, and so there's a, a whole doctrine or a whole myth of um, how the soul um, lives after death, uh, and and so there's a within the individual Socrates there's a split between the the body, which uh, is um, perishable and um, uh, subject to change and decay, uh, and then the soul, which is immortal um, and which uh, lives on after death and and doesn't uh, doesn't change in the same way. Um, so this this is sort of um, uh, a more a more complex notion of individuality than what we've seen in the pre-Socratics. Um, it's a, a very um, 
articulated notion of individuality. Individu- the individual is something that has a uh, structure to it as opposed to something like an atom, which is uh, 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 completely structureless. I remember him talking about the uh, daimon in volume one. And I think that there we talked about how uh, it was the, um, the refraction of the trans individual uh, in Heracle in Athens, like the historic specificity, I guess, at that time. Um, and also, I think he associated it with inhibition, uh, which also kind of seems to be the way that it functions here. Yeah, I, uh, I don't remember the, the details of that development. Of, I, I know he did mention um, Socrates' daimon in, in volume one, but I don't remember the details of that development. Um, um, but yeah, he... Um, it's especially this role of inhibition that is important for the, the daimon as um, sort of the guardian of uh, Socrates' moral individuality. Um, it, it's because he has this uh, um, daimon that, that speaks to him and tells him not to do things that he can sort of preserve his individuality um, that... Uh, Whereas other people who don't have this daimon or, or who maybe who ignore their daimon are, um, are less individuated than Socrates is or, or are less consistent as individuals than Socrates is. Um, and so, yeah, this, this role of inhibition is to preserve the individuality of this uh, exceptional individual that Socrates is. One thing I don't totally understand about this yeah, this kind of like dynamic notion of the individual for Socrates is that it seems like on the one hand, individuation is this uh, self-relation that is achieved by the dialectic or the contradiction with actuality, I think is what he calls it. Um, but this, it seems to be like the discovery of an individuality that is already there. Um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe it's more like an individualization than, uh, an individuation. Um, and I think it, at some point he relates this to the notion of personality, uh, which I think in volume one, what he described as the relation between the empirical and transcendental subject. And, um, I don't know if he's saying that this, the subject of which somebody you know, one comes to have knowledge after encountering Socrates is this, I don't know, something like a more primordial individuality that's already there in the way that the transcendental subject could be said to be. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think I, I think I see where you're going with that. Um, yeah, so there's, there's a definitely a sense in which the individuation is already there. Um, so in the... Um, in the dialectic through which we come to know ourselves, um, we we come to learn about ourselves as we already are. Um, so uh, there's a, a certain um, existence of the self before uh, before this uh, operation of self knowledge happens, um, and so we'll see this um, as we continue reading. But he um, Socrates. Um, uh, starts to develop this um, idea of reminiscence as being um, the, the the knowledge that the soul has before um, 
before birth uh and and so like the the um sort of clearest articulation of this doctrine is in the mino where um socrates gets a, a slave who who doesn't know geometry to um to sort of rediscover how to double the size of a square um uh just through asking questions and and then the slave sort of um finds the solution just through Socrates prompting um, and not through being told how to do it. Um, and uh, so Socrates takes this to, to be an indication that this geometrical knowledge was already present in uh, in the, the slave's soul before his birth. Um, and uh, and so likewise, the the knowledge that we gain from uh, dialectic is in our soul before our birth. Um, it's only, uh, it's it's sort of hidden knowledge. It's knowledge that we don't have available to us. Uh, and then Socrates' art of the dialectic is um, what allows us to come to uh, re, uh, relearn what we already know. Um, and, and this is reminiscence uh, in, in the specific sense that uh, that doc, that uh, Socrates uses this term, um, so yeah, so the the self um, that comes to learn about itself is already uh, is already there you know, as an individual, um, uh, and we can maybe say that this operation of self knowledge or or coming to know oneself is a sort of deepening of the self, or um, uh, uh, the the self becomes something more. Uh, more individuated um, or more um, uh, more structured um, as opposed to something kind of obscure and uh, unstructured before this operation of self-knowledge happens uh, but but it's a, an operation in something that already had this individuation before birth uh, and only um, uh, has to relearn what it already learned or what it already knew maybe that's uh one of the reasons he says that Socrates's position on individuation only works for moral or ethical individuation. He's not really trying to explain the, the initial individuation uh, of what is rediscovered through the dialectic. Yeah, so um, Simon Don is going to make a, a pretty sharp distinction between the Socratic um, um, dialogues uh, so in, in Plato's dialogues, the ones in which we have um, sort of a, a faithful representation of Socrates as someone who is interested in moral or ethical questions about justice and courage and piety and, and similar ideas. Um, uh, and then as opposed to um, the Platonic dialogues, the ones that are um, sort of Plato putting forth his doctrine in, in Socrates' mouth, um, in, so, and in those dialogues, we have uh, more um, metaphysics and uh, epistemology, um, um, and uh, like in the Timaeus, we have a whole um, doctrine of the creation of the universe, um, and uh, um, each of these, uh, sorry, uh, these these later dialogues, or the ones that Simon Don takes to be later, um, the ones in which we have uh, Platonic doctrine, um, a lot of the times, uh, several of them involve Socrates only as a sort of um, passive participant. So he just says, um, 
yes, that's true, or or things like that, um, where the other person, um, uh, like in uh, the Parmenides, um, uh, uh, it's it's the Iliadic stranger who um, does most of the talking, and then Socrates just says, yes, that's that's true, and or yes, I agree, and and so on. Um, uh, and then in the, the Timaeus, it's it's uh, Timaeus who develops his account of the creation of the world, uh, and Socrates is again sort of a, a passive participant. Um, uh, so in each of these dialogues, uh, there's um, a different understanding or a, a different uh, account of where the individual fits in with the rest of the world, as opposed to um, uh, an attempt to account for the ethical individuation of a, a person, which is what um, Simondon takes the more Socratic dialogues to be uh, dealing with. Okay, so let's go on to the next page or so from uh, the top of 446, Negation and Contradiction. Um, I can read. Negation and contradiction allow for each person to know themselves, at least those who are something. Uh, Charmides, a reserved adolescent, does not know what reservation is. Lackeys and Nicias are two brave heroes who are unaware of what courage is. The pious Euthypro does not manage to say what piety is. In his interrogations, Socrates turns these beings who are ignorant into beings who are self-aware. However, just as every fault stems from ignorance and no one is wicked voluntarily, this change in self-knowledge for the individual is a veritable transformation of the individual being, not to become other, but to affirm oneself in oneself. Knowledge has the value of being, for it modifies action. The complete individual is the being who knows himself, and to that extent is consequently the cause of himself. Nevertheless, it should be noted that the self-knowledge that the pious, the reserved, and the brave acquires is a knowledge that does not reach individual particularity qua absolute originality, but instead the fundamental force of personality, which valorizes the individual and makes it such that he is known as a man who excels by such a virtue. In some way, self-consciousness guarantees the dominance of a basic virtue around which the whole personality is constructed. Socratic knowledge reaches the personality rather than individuality. This is why it founds the coherence of the successive. The vision of the individuality of the human being is not sufficient for Plato, who, quite preoccupied uh, with political problems, wants to assign a place to the individual being in the city, as well as to each being in the universe. At the same time, the dialectical method changes direction. In the first dialogues, dialectics is essentially an interrogation of the interlocutor by Socrates. Socrates does not bring forth any doctrine. He really forces the individual being to know himself. Conversely, later on, it is no longer the individual who is the depository of truth. Dialectics. Sorry, Jan, could you mute your mic? Dialectics becomes a dialogue between two opinions, two theses that face off. There is no adherence of truth to the individual being. Finally, in the last dialogues, the relation of truth to an individual existence further degrades. Socrates or the Eleatic stranger are merely Plato's spokesmen, and their discourse becomes a didactic monologue at the limit. The life of the individual, the destiny of his soul, are less and less the object of a very rigorous search. Myth alone is the means for expressing that which is of the order of becoming. The evocation of destiny is therefore integrated into a cosmology that turns the world into a great living being. The world becomes the scene in which the souls of men and the gods evolve. What is sought here is no superiority. Individuals are grasped as the 
as the manner of a general eschatology that links astronomical speculations to the myth of the soul. The Timaeus reveals the birth of the world soul and the formation of its body, which it has organized itself. So it seems like in this, his presentation of the history of the individual as moving back and forth between privileging structure versus dynamism or being and becoming, uh, at least in this, this part of the discussion of Plato, uh, he's closer to maybe like Parmenides um, or a thinker of, uh, of being with a limited becoming. Um, although I think he's going to complicate that later on. Yeah. So um, it's not, it's not just that. Um, so there's this sort of back and forth between um, being and becoming, as you said, but there's also um, a sort of, um, I guess, taking one or one or the other of being or becoming to be fundamental and then the other to be sort of derived from it. So um, in in Plato, we especially see this, this um, doctrine in which um, becoming is always uh, secondary to being. Uh, and so um, what what truly is it are the unchanging ideas of of entities um, or or the uh, unchanging ideas of justice and um, knowledge and and so on um, and uh, these these are what truly exists and and then the entities that um, undergo change are are sort of um, mixtures of being and non-being there they sort of partly exist and partly don't don't exist um, and, uh, and and so in this understanding um, the uh, dialectic is not so much uh, a sort of development of an individual um, it's a kind of uh, recovery of something that uh, exists prior to the individuals that we um, are familiar with uh, the, these mixtures of being and non-being, um, and and so um, the the doctrine of um, of uh, the ideas sort of subordinates the individual to something um, that is not exactly um, individuated in the way that a, a human being is. Um, that um, these ideas are. Uh, um, sort of the principles uh, from which um, change happens or towards which change happens, but they themselves don't undergo change. And so the human individual that uh, undergoes change is not a real being uh, or not a fully existent being. And we'll see this um, as we continue reading in, in the next couple pages, but um, this is also um, connected with the point that, that Simondon makes here about how Plato um, is occupied, preoccupied with political problems. Uh, and so Plato takes it that the, the um, ideal city, uh, the city that has the best possible laws and uh, um, constitution is a city that wouldn't change. Um, so because if, it, if a city is changing, that means it's, uh, it's not occupying the best possible um, uh, structure or the best possible formation. Uh, and if, if a city has the best possible um, formation, then change would only be a, um, a decline from the best possible uh, structure. Um, 
So in the same way that the best possible city is one that doesn't change, uh, likewise, um, we uh, the individual um, is only subject to change insofar as it is not a, a complete being or not a uh, not something that is um, uh, fully existent. Uh, and then this is also tied with the um, development of the dialectic into um, a sort of uh, exposition of a, a, a doctrine that we see in some of those other dialogues, the, the ones that Simon Don takes to be more uh, platonic than Socratic. Um, so in these dialogues, we just have one person um, delivering uh, delivering a, a, an exposition of a doctrine, and then the other party, the other party, just says things like "Yes, that's true," or "Or I agree," or 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 um, just makes like little interjections like this that are not really um, that, that don't really make up a, a dialogue in the way that the, some of the earlier or, or the ones that Simon Don takes to be earlier um, uh, do. Uh, and I should probably mention that there there is. Um, so this division of the dialogues into the earlier and the later ones is uh, is a sort of traditional one. Um, so it's not it doesn't come from Simon Don in particular, uh, but more recent scholarship I think is less um, uh, less inclined to accept this traditional division um, that uh, is primarily based on what we um, or what later readers would consider sort of the sophistication of the different texts. So the ones that seem more sort of philosophically sophisticated, like um, the Parmenides or the Sophist or, or some of these ones um, are, are treated as being later ones. And then some of the ones that seem uh, simpler or, or less sophisticated, like the Euthyphro or the Apology are taken to be earlier texts. Um, but this is sort of, this sort of relies on um, our understanding of what is philosophical sophistication, which isn't necessarily what Plato's understanding of philosophical sophistication was. Uh, so it, what we take to be the later um, dialogues aren't necessarily later. Um, it, it's it's something that, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of based on our assumptions about philosophical sophistication and, and may not be accurate. Okay, uh, so yeah, let's go on to the next page. Um, I can read. The individual and the philosopher in particular must establish his place in the city. And in the depiction of the philosopher, Plato reveals what could be called the paradox of individuality, which remained hidden in Socrates because Socrates didn't seek to define a place for the philosopher in the city. According to the Phaedo, the philosopher is the man who, purified of the taints of the body, no longer lives except by way of the soul separated from the body. In the Theaetetus, he is still the man who, inept and clumsy in his rapports with men, will never have a place within human society and will remain without influence. According to the Republic and the Laws, he is on the contrary the guardian of the constitution of the magistrate who imposes on the village's inhabitants the belief in the gods of the city or the, the perpetual prison. This is the ever-present conflict in the individual being between the necessity of escaping from earth to purify himself in the contemplation of the ideas whose sister is the soul, like a contemplative thinker who has retreated from the world to gain self-knowledge, and the other necessity, which is the construction of the just city structured according to the exact and rigorous rapports that are the object of contemplative science. True individuality is perhaps in that which forms the link between these two orders according to which the individual affirms himself in himself within solitary self-knowledge 
and expresses himself via the creation of an object of work, a work as real as things in the society of other men. In addition to these two traits of pure interiority and pure exteriority, there is also in Plato an aspect of individual existence, which is like a mixture of the two. The enthusiasm and inspiration of the Theto and the Symposium, the individual is that which can only be generated or created in the beautiful. Within the individual being, there is a force that is the daughter of Poros and Penya, which is both a positive and a negative thing, satisfaction and lack. Love is one of the forces that joins in, in them isolation and presence to others, self-affirmation and the search for another reality. Beauty therefore corresponds to these two aspects of the individual being. Every individual existence supposes self-affirmation and a search for something else. Affirmation and searching are correlative and com complementary. The erotic dialectic, which leads from beautiful bodies to beautiful souls, then from beautiful souls to the ideas in which they participate, accounts for this apparent paradox of the nature of the individual. Nevertheless, this misconception is possible only due to the relation of participation this relation of participation itself leads to supposing the independence of ideas and the objects that participate in these ideas. Here is where Plato diverges from the Socratic conception of individual reality. For Socrates, the search for self-knowledge led to a discovery of the unique characteristic due to which a thing is what it is, and which could be called the nature of a being. This is why Socrates seeks to reach and euthyphro what makes euthyphro pious. For Socrates, this char characteristic is something that resides in the individual being. This search was possible for Socrates because it was limited to virtues or vices, i.e. to moral things, which can be grasped in human individuals. On the contrary, Plato wants to apply the method of seeking ideas to all beings, to mathematical beings in particular. The properties of mathematical beings are visibly independent from the sensible characteristics according to which a certain triangle or a certain circle exists, because it has been traced in a certain spot, at a certain moment, and in a certain way. Straightness and circularity are not contained in this object like piety and euthyphro or wisdom in Socrates. These mathematical realities exist outside the objects that reveal them to the senses. Similarly, in physical things, a quality like whiteness will exist more so in a small amount of pure white than in a large amount of grayish white. This is because the sensible object contains neither straightness nor circularity nor whiteness, but merely participates in these realities that Plato calls ideas. This separation, which Aristotle severely reproached Plato for in his Metaphysics, prevents Plato from directly accepting the Socratic conception of individuality. Since the ideas themselves are discovered as hypotheses, it is necessary to rise, up, rise back up to the unconditioned term in which they participate. The science, therefore, requires anterior to life a vision of ideas, which implies the pre-existence of the soul. However, just as certain individuals like Pericles or Aristides, without possessing science, since they have been unable to turn their sons into politicians, nevertheless possess the capacity to govern the city well, the existence of right opinion must be supposed in them. This right opinion is not a characteristic that belongs to individual reality, like piety or wisdom in Socrates' theory. It is not that by which a being is what it is, that is, that, that form itself that makes all pious actions pious, but the force that makes a man do what he does. It then must be acknowledged that right opinion der der derives from the inspiration of the gods. Philosophical inspiration is itself an aspect of the madness of love, for it is spiritual generation in the soul of the disciple. The life of the mind in the individual being is just like that of the body. The love of beautiful bodies extends the life of one individual into another. The love of beautiful souls extends the powers of the intelligence from the teacher to the disciple. The individual being therefore learns to go beyond himself. This beyond is not the same as the one Socrates indicated when he invited the soul to escape from the earth. Uh, I'll stop there because yeah, that was more than a page. Um, 
yeah, so um, so here we have uh, this um, development of or the we've we've transitioned from talking about talking about uh, Socrates in particular to talking about uh, Plato. Um, so here um, we have this notion of uh, contemplation um, uh, contemplation of the ideas. So um, whereas in the Socratic um, dialectic, we have this uh, development of um, moral ideas uh, and, and this attempt to sort of purify um, uh, these moral ideas like justice. Um, instead, in these uh, more platonic dialogues, we have um, this attempt to find the idea of, uh, uh, of knowledge um, or the idea of um, the city, um, or um, in general, we have attempts to to define <clears throat> to define metaphysical concepts um, and uh, to develop this doctrine um, of of ideas as being the primary realities. Um, and so, this doctrine has to do with, um, in particular, with mathematical realities. Uh, and so, there's the famous line. Um, that Plato required um, all of his students to study geometry, uh, and and there was that it was uh, supposedly uh, written over the door of the academy that let no one enter here who was ignorant of geometry, um, and uh, so Plato takes mathematical knowledge to be the the sort of paradigm case of um, knowledge of uh, of the idea or knowledge of what is um, extra sensory, so something that is beyond the sensible world. Uh, so the mathematician draws a circle or a triangle uh, in the sand or today on a blackboard. Um, but what the mathematician is reasoning about is not the actual circle drawn in the sand, but um, the ideal circle, the, the circle as such. Um, and uh, um, it's this... Um, it's this capacity to um, uh, to uh, this capacity to have knowledge of something that is not uh, sensible that Plato takes to be um, especially characteristic of mathematical knowledge and who uh, and that he um, uh, sees as as being uh, as consisting in this contemplation of the ideas. Um, so um, we. We have knowledge of uh, what is not sensible by uh, contemplating the ideas, uh, and um, this is what true knowledge consists in. And we'll see more on this um, as we continue. But um, this this doctrine of ideas as as um, uh, separate from the entities in which they inhere or the entities that participate in them. Um, this doctrine of separation is is the one that um, Aristotle criticizes most explicitly in Plato. Um, so um, there's the the famous uh, what's called the third man arguments um, that we'll see uh, discussed a little bit later, um, where where Aristotle um, argues that the doctrine of a, a form of man or an idea of man as being what all men participate in is uh, incoherent. Uh, and so we'll we'll see that a bit later. Um, but that's the uh, what what this um, bit about separation means here. 
Okay, let's continue from uh, top of 449. Uh, if someone else would like to read. Yeah, I can go again. Um, Plato's individual is surpassed by a program into universality and not by a metabasis as allo, migration toward elsewhere. From the love of a body to the love of every beautiful thing, from the love of beautiful objects to the love of beautiful souls, from the love of beautiful souls to the love of beautiful ideas, then to the love of the immense sea of the beautiful, from which all these beauties originate, there is a progress toward universality. The poet instructs future generations through inspiration. It is also through inspiration that the Pythia performs that fine work of hers for all of Greece, whereas in her right mind she performs few or none. Amorous inspiration, the starting point for philosophy, gives wings back to the soul. Without this inspiration, the soul attains nothing but a cunning skill. Have you ever noticed this about people who are said to be vicious but clever? How keen the vision of their little souls is, so that the sharper it sees, the more evil it accomplishes. Conversely, the individual soul, thanks to inspiration, sees operating in it a conversion of becoming to being, which takes place with the entire soul. The isolated being in its individuality is the fallen soul of the Phaedrus. This is the prisoner who, in the cave of the Republic, expects the dialectic to come and give him a moment of conversion toward the light. The individual is thus capable of passing between, sorry, the, the individual is thus capable of passing through two states, that of isolation, which is consecutive with the fall of the soul from the sky down to earth, and that of rising back towards the world of ideas of the return to the vision of which the soul is a part. The temporal circularity of the succession of these two aspects establishes a coherence of their opposition. However, this first conception of the individual conforms to the validity of true opinion, and recognizing within the individual a mediating reality between being and nothingness, and therefore a being in becoming, is incompatible with the critique of participation in the Parmenides and the critique of science in the Theotetus. The political exigency is an exigency of unity, as much for this unity that the human individual is as for this other organized individual that is the ideal city constituted by classes or castes, which are like social individualities with their own structure. The unity of the individual will be obtained and maintained by the unicity of its social function. In the just city, it is necessary to regulate the activity of citizens in such a way that, quote, each each of the other citizens is to be directed to what he is naturally suited for, so that doing the one work that is his own, he will become not many, but one, and the whole city will itself be naturally one, not many. The citizen is there is then singularly defined in his relation to the other occupations. Plato is consequently far from the myth of the primordial hermaphrodite, which shows veritable individuality in the couple and not in man or woman. In the ideal city, the individual is indeed the particular being. Individuality is given from the start by the rigorous determinism of the character chosen by the soul before incarnation. Individuality is no longer an optative, that of the incomplete soul, forgetful of itself and the ideas, throughout the avatars of incarnation and successive lives, or in the search for its half, from which it has been separated by divine wrath, according to the old Hesiodic myth. Right, so here we have... Um the this is the bit that um i mentioned earlier on when we were talking about um the political um doctrine of the republic um so 
uh, in this doctrine, we have um, individuals as uh, assigned to particular functions within the city. Uh, and so he divides up the city into the the guardians, the um, who are the the sort of philosopher kings, the 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 ones who um, make decisions for the city, uh, and then the uh, warriors, um, and uh, and then the um, I forget the name for the last class, but it's the uh, the class that is sort of occupied with um, the business of the city. Um, and um, so every um, individual it has a, a natural aptitude for one of these uh, functions, and then the guardians will um, sort of uh, test each individual as they're growing up, and and then decide which category they belong to. Um, and uh, um, so this the the argument here the, the, in the way that Simon Don presents it is that. Uh, each individual should occupy one function so that they can be um, a unified individual um, as opposed to uh, having to occupy multiple functions um, means that they, they are sort of dis, uh, disunified or, or um, disparate um, rather than being united. Uh, and then a city that is composed of these united individuals that have uh, a singular function um, would itself be a, a unified city uh, for that reason. Um, um, and then uh, there's also mention here of um, the, the critique of, of participation in the Parmenides. Um, so the, the Parmenides is a, a strange dialogue um, because, well, for a few reasons, but um, one among them is that uh, Socrates plays a, a sort of passive role in this dialogue, as I mentioned earlier. Um, he he uh, just sort of answering uh, or sort of just uh, responding to the doctrine that the Eliadic stranger, um, who is the main personality in this dialogue, um, the the Eliadic stranger develops his doctrine. Um, but what he um, what he um, Sets forth is a sort a series of different paradoxes um, where um, each uh, each hypothesis that he presents he ends up showing uh, leads to contradiction and so um, um, uh, there there it's a very abstract um, dialogue about like um, being and the one uh, and you know if if the one is not then being. Uh, is not as well or or things along those lines um, um but um here simon is taking it to be um a sort of internal critique uh by plato of his own doctrine of uh of participation uh, of uh entities in the ideas um and um he takes this to be uh incompatible with the um the idea that we saw a little bit earlier of true opinion um uh and so true opinion would be a sort of quasi knowledge um it's not knowledge in the proper sense of the term but it's a uh, because um the people that possess true opinion are not capable of teaching uh teaching others how to um engage in a particular practice like the practice of politics um but uh, it's a, a kind of um, intuitive sense of how to behave in a particular domain. Um, so you can think of like um, uh, maybe like our, our um, 
the way how we know how to ride a bike like if you had to explain to someone how you, what you do to ride a bike it would be kind of difficult like it's it's hard to teach someone how to ride a bike but um we we know how to do it um in in this sort of intuitive way um uh so our our understanding of how to ride a bike is a kind of um um true opinion uh as opposed to knowledge in the sense that uh plato wants to use that term um and so this uh true opinion um has to this doctrine of, of true opinion has to um, sort of grant that there's an uh, intermediate between um, being and non-being. Uh, there's a, a sort of intermediate state in which the individual doesn't uh, have a true knowledge of being, uh, a knowledge of the ideas, um, but uh, at the same time, it, it's not a, a sort of pure nothingness. Uh, the individual has um, this sort of quasi knowledge or this um, implicit knowledge of how to do something. Uh, and, and so there's this intermediate state between being and non-being. Um, uh, and and this, it's this doctrine um, that Simon Dong takes to be in, in uh, contradiction with the, um, the dialogue or, or the, the exposition in the Parmenides. Uh, and there may be another bit that might be um, uncle unclear uh, or um, obscure if if you haven't read um, um, the symposium. Uh, but there's the bit here right at the top of 450, the myth of the primordial hermaphrodite. Um, so in in the symposium, um, Aristophanes appears as, as one of the characters, and he delivers this um, uh, this myth of um, of how love uh, sort of came about. And so in this myth, um, the gods create human beings as um, these sort of conjoined couples. Uh, so they're entities that have four arms and four, uh, or sorry, yeah, four arms and four legs um, um, that uh, are sort of united uh, with each other. And then at some point, the, the gods uh, split each of these um, double entities into two. Uh, and then love is the attempt at uh, reuniting this sort of conjoined um, uh, original hermaphrodite, um, and uh, so that's that's what that bit is about. Um, um, and uh, so in in this doctrine, the true individual is this primordial hermaphrodite um, or this sort of double being, um, and then each of us uh, as the single being is a sort of half individual where we're sort of the remainder of, of this um uh act of splitting uh and and so this is um simon don't takes this myth to be opposed to plato's own uh position in which the the individual is individuated by um um by its place in the ideal city Okay, let's continue uh, with the next page. Uh, um, I think we're at the, uh, so near the top of 450, the individual becomes the elementary unity. Um, I can read. The individual becomes the elementary unity by means of which the order of the city is constructed. It is no longer what contains right opinion in this amorous madness that brings the individual to surpass himself and to extend beyond himself through his body and his thought. To be an element of the ideal city, the individual, on the contrary, must remain in his place. 
and the narrow limits going all the way to the fixity of the level of wealth. Women will occupy the same places and fulfill the same functions as men. By a sort of reversal of the second conception of individuality, Plato returns to a vision of individual reality that is no longer dynamic and expansive, like that of the symposium in the Phaedrus, but structural, like the one that Socrates seemed to search for. Just as Socrates sought in Euthyphro what makes Euthyphro what he is, i.e. a pious man, Plato searches for what makes an artisan an artisan or a warrior a warrior. In this conception, there is a return to eminence. What makes a warrior a warrior is not his participation in the archetype of the warrior or his aspiration toward the ideal warrior, but the fact that he has within himself, within his individual reality, a certain character that consists in a definite rapport of powers of the soul and functions of the body. This character is like a sign engraved in the individual being. This character is the structure of the individual being and determines it in its actions. Here, there is no longer even the aspect of transcendence uh, that appeared in the conception of Socrates by this idea that thanks to self-awareness, which requires detachment with respect to the actual order, the order of actual things, the, the being accomplishes within himself what he is essentially due to his fundamental virtue, i.e. that in which he excels. In the city, detachment is unnecessary for the individual to be himself. The structure that constitutes his individuality is not, in fact, a structure independent from the order of the city, i.e. the actual order. The structure of the individual is in rapport, in a rapport of analogy with the structure of the city, and the social order is constituted by the rigorous insertion of these individual orders into, the, into a vaster order. The individual is a finite reality, and the city is also a finite reality. Individual and city are like microcosm and macrocosm, and the rapport of analogy that exists between them is an identity of rapports internal to each. The order of succession is incorporated into the order of, simul of simultaneity, for the order of succession has no creative value. Philosopher magistrates must look after the maintenance of the laws and the structure of the city. Recently, we have called the Platonic city a city without friction i.e. a system in which the play between the different elements is null, insofar as it does not allow any indetermination to remain between the relative displacements of the different elements, albeit without any force of friction despite this rigorous mutual adaptation. In the city where the different functions play without friction, like the organs of the theoretical machine, no free force of true opinion or enthusiasm is left to individuals. The citizens are who they are, depending on their place, and the temporal dimension for the city as well as for the, for the citizen, is reduced to the most perfect approximation of permanence possible. The only natural and spontaneous evolution, in fact, is decadence. Consequently, the social relations with the individual involves with other individuals indicate the internal relations that constitute what we would call today the psychology of the individual. There is a reversibility between the social order and the psychological. There are as many functions in the city as there are faculties in the individual soul. Concupiscence corresponds to the function of the artisan, insofar as it is lodged in the stomach and the genitals. The passion of wrath corresponds to the function of the warriors. Reflective intelligence corresponds to the function of the guardian. Now, the seat of the passion of anger is the heart and more generally the thorax. On the contrary, the seat of reflective intelligence is the head. Yeah, so this seems to be basically totally the opposite of the Socratic notion of the individual, I guess, except for this, this idea of the 
discovery of the of the the real care of the individual in order to fit them into the structure. It seems like for Socrates that discovery it entails at least initially a separation from the existing structure um, as opposed to uh, fitting into it. Also, Plato, Plato's ideal city kind of sounds like Starship Troopers. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's probably uh, um, um, influence in the other direction um, for, on Starship Troopers uh, from from Plato. Um, but um, yeah, so there's there's this um, uh, doctrine of the individual as um, occupying a particular function uh, in in connection with the proportion of the functions within the body. Uh, so each um, each of the um, uh, positions within the social order uh, has a particular body part associated with it. So the guardians are associated with the head, uh, the warriors are associated with the heart, and the um, artisans are associated with the stomach. Um, and so each in in the people that belong to each of these categories, um, this part of the body uh, predominates over the others. Um, and and so there's a um, a sort of microcosm macrocosm relationship between the city as a whole and the individual um, uh, so that each individual is a, a sort of um, uh, uh, representative of the city. Um, but with the predominance of particular one particular function over the others, and um, yeah, so this is quite different than the um, position that we see in some of the the ones that the dialogues that Simon Dong takes to be uh, more Socratic, uh, in which we have this notion of uh, the individual as being um, something separate from a social order uh, and having to sort of extract itself from the social order. Uh, here we have um, the individuation is defined through the individuals being uh, integrated into a social order. Uh, and there's, there's no longer um, this, um, this idea of the soul as being um, sort of outside of the body as, as something independent of the body. And now we have the soul as being um, the souls of these different uh, classes of, of people are characterized by their relationship to the body. Uh, so different, um, different types of souls uh, correspond to different types of bodies. Uh, and, and so, um, yeah, this is a, a very different um, representation of, uh, of what the individuation of the individual consists in than we see in some of the other dialogues that we talked about earlier. And uh, we also see here this, um, this notion that I mentioned earlier that um, the, um, the individual, like the city, is something that can only ever um, sort of decay from perfection. Um, there's, there's no sense in which uh, there's a sort of growth into perfection or, or a development or um, a sort of dynamics of the individual. Um, the city is a, a, an ideal city. Um, insofar as it, um, um, insofar as it is a city that doesn't change, uh, and and vice versa. So, 
um, the individual likewise, um, insofar as it undergoes change, uh, is an, an individual that is not a perfect individual. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, we can compare this to um, what Simon Dos says about the brick uh, in volume one, um, where he talks about how the brick is individuated once and for all, and then it only ever um, decays afterwards. It, it you know, eventually turns into dust. Um, whereas in uh, the living individual, the process of individuation is ongoing. And so the, the living individual is a sort of slowed down um, brick or a slowed down crystallization. Um, it's uh, it's a, a sort of um, uh, neotenization of, um, of physical individuation. Uh, and so likewise, in, in uh, Plato's doctrine of the city, the individuation of the individual happens sort of all at once and then can only ever decay afterwards. Um, and uh, so it's a, yeah, I think that is a, a useful comparison. Okay, so let's uh, continue. Uh, let me see, where did we end? Um, I think we ended with the seat of reflective intelligence is the head, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, um, so I'll read from here. This structure is deeply inscribed in the individual being since it corresponds to a topology of the organism. The concupiscent appetite lodged in the stomach can act upon anger, since the stomach is only separated from the thorax by the supple partition of a diaphragm, allowing for movements to pass and impulses to communicate. By contrast, the head is separated from the thorax by this isthmus that the neck is. The independence of the reflective intelligence relative to the passion of anger and the concupiscent appetites is therefore much more easily uh, is much more easy than the independence of the passion of anger relative to the appetites. This psychology easily translates into ethics according to a schema that should be analyzed. In every Greek civilization, virtue is presented as an excellence. But with Socrates, virtue is directly the excellence of what makes each individual be himself, an excellence of which the individual becomes aware and which fixes and stabilizes him through self-awareness. On the contrary, with Plato, virtue is excellence only indirectly for the individual. Indeed, for the concupiscent appetite, the passion of anger, and the reflective intelligence, there is an excellence proper to each of these three faculties, temperance, courage, and prudence. But unlike with Socrates, the veritable virtue of the individual is not the dominance of the faculty that characterizes it. The order of these faculties is what subordinates the appetites to the passion of anger and the passion of anger to the reflective intelligence. This observation of a rapport is not an excellence, a dynamism, but a structure or rather the condition for the maintenance of the fundamental structure of the individual being in society and of the city itself, such as justice for the city and for the individual. It is the supreme virtue, but unlike particular virtues, it is not an excellence, a dynamism. Justice is the stability of a structure due to which reciprocity is established between the interior order of the individual and its exterior activity constituted by social rapports. And excellence can be maintained by itself in the isolation of individual existence. Conversely, the stability of a rapport requires reciprocity between the internal relation and the external relation. The man who is just in himself, uh, the man who is just in himself is just around himself, while the man who is unjust around him, outside himself cannot conserve within himself this justice, which is constituted by the justness, justesse, of rapports and is founded in being. Just as a tool engaged in an incorrect usage, one that does not correspond to its structure, not only distorts the objects to which it is applied, but also distorts itself and can then no longer operate according to its veritable structure. 
the unjust man in society loses this internal justice that was the justness of his agreement with himself. Whence the idea that false is not a positive harmfulness that expresses itself, but the result of an error or lack. In this sense, we see how Socrates' teaching is again found in Plato's last works, but it is oddly transformed insofar as it is no longer uh, insofar as it no longer includes this aspect of the aspiration and opening of the individual being, which is what gave Socrates' teaching the force of novelty that terrified the opinion of the old Athenians expressed by Aristophanes. From Socrates to Plato, at least to the Plato of the last dialogues, a displacement occurs that transferred self-awareness from the individual to society. For Socrates, the gnothi seotan is said to be is said to the individual. For Plato, it is society that must know itself through the philosopher magistrates. To know itself, it must be fixed and limited, for the recurrent action of self-knowledge cannot be effectuated in the indefinite or the unlimited, and even less so in the undetermined. And the individual is known only through the city's knowledge of itself as the elementary part. Justice, the virtue of structure and not the virtue of excellence, allows for this immediate contact and display without friction between the city and the individual. The city knows the individual by knowing itself. At the level of the laws, the veritable individual is the city. Uh, so here we have another contrast between the Socratic um, position, uh, according to Simondon, and then the Platonic one. So um, in the Socratic position, we have this notion of virtue as excellence. Um, so meaning that um, excellence is something that we strive for um, and that we have to sort of uh, develop in ourselves um so in the same way that you learn to play the lyre or um learn how to ride a horse or whatever uh you have to learn how to be excellent in the virtues um in um uh cur courage and piety and so on um <clears throat> uh but in in plato's doctrine in the republic um we have instead um not uh this sort of excellence as something that we strive for, but um, justice has to do with the insertion into the community and um, the sort of relationship of uh, of functions to each other. Uh, and so um, the justice um, having to do with the role of the individual, uh, justice um, has the... Uh, sort of alternate meaning of uh, justesse. That, so Simon is sort of doing a, a bit of a play on words here, but um, justesse means something like um, um, appropriateness or something along those lines. Um, so there's, uh, in the same way that certain tool is appropriate for a certain type of work, um, and if you try to use a, uh, if you try to use a, a hammer as a screwdriver or vice versa, um, things are not gonna work very well. Um, and, um, um, yeah, so there's, um, uh, likewise, if you try to use a, a person who, um, is sort of naturally destined to be an artisan, uh, if you try to use them as a, a warrior, things are not going to work well. And so justice is using the individual in an appropriate way. And, um, so this, what this means is that um, self-knowledge is not anymore, uh, or not primarily, the knowledge of the individual, but it's the knowledge of the city. Um, so the city, the guardians of the city have to have knowledge of the correct um, proportions of the different functions and uh, knowledge of which citizens should be assigned to which functions. Um, 
and uh, yeah, so this is sort of the the transference of self knowledge from uh, from the uh, level of the individual onto the level of the city. Um, let's see how much more we have of Plato. Uh, oh, there's still quite a bit. Okay, uh, so let's continue to the um, the next page here from the top of 453. If someone else would like to read. Is that uh, does this conception? Is that right? Yes. Does this conception of individuality result from the need to conceive a stable city, or on the contrary, does it stem from the critique of knowledge and the conception of being in the Theotetus, the Sophist, and the Parmenides? Does not fall within the scope of this study to ascertain if Plato was motivated by the will to found the political order, or if his conception of the political order mostly results from the methodological and theoretical discoveries that follow in the dialogues of the critical period. But it should be noted that the conception of the individual being conforms both with the demands of political thought and the discoveries of logical and metaphysical thought. The stable is also the perfect, quote, above all, the laws need to be stable, unquote. The politician is one who knows how to make the most stable mixture possible. The political problem is a problem of measure. Antithetical constitutions, whether despotism or democracy, are bad when they are isolated. They must be joined together in a stable mixture, a well-proportioned blend produced by the good constitution. The city is a quote, the city is quote, a friend to itself, unquote, when there is harmony in it between sensibility and the intelligence, which judges. Taken away from the human individual, love and enthusiasm reappear at the level of the city, such that the law is not sufficient unto itself and is thereby preceded by prologue, which is addressed to the free inclination of the gathering of citizens. Man seems like a, quote, a toy for God, unquote, because the veritable individual is the city, and because the particular being contains within himself neither the whole development of his explanation nor the ethics that legitimizes and organizes his existence. The consequence of Plato's critique is, in fact, to displace the points of application of theoretical thought. A philosophy of relation follows after the primordial philosophy of being. In the first two periods of the development of Plato's thought, a, Par a Parmen Parmenian conception of being remains behind the Socratic search for essential virtues. This conception, which is clear in the first period, is corrected in the second period by the dynamism of true opinion and the erotic dialectic. The individual is always isolated from the order of actuality, but he is not self-enclosed in the sense that he involves a relation of participation with the ideas and the anhypothetical term that the ascending dialectic supposes. The sensible is nothing but the occasion of this uprising of the soul, which is at the same time a detachment. But in order for the sensible to be the occasion of this uprising, it already must be the image of the archetype. Dynamism is a detachment, no doubt. But the occasion of this discovery of the soul's uprising is a contact with the sensible, which contains in it more than it is, i.e., the image of the world of ideas, the order of actuality, only intervenes as image. But nevertheless, there is a certain figuration of being in Genesis, generation, creation, and Thora, destruction. The structure of the sensible is not achieved in itself, since it is not just the occasion of the of uprising, but the first image of the intelligible. Um, yeah, so here we have um, a sort of periodization of Plato's thought. Um, so we have, um, I think, um, it's not 100% clear here, but I think he's taking the first period to be the Socratic one, um, the one in which Plato is sort of faithfully depicting Socrates 
um, activities in Athens. Um, and then the second period is the one in which he um, in which he talks about um, um, the the sort of dynamism, what, what Simon Don here calls the dynamism of true opinion and the erotic dialectic. So this is um, especially the the symposium, um, the uh, the doctrine in which um, the individual has to sort of um, strive for knowledge of the forms or of the ideas. Uh, and, and there's a sort of um, uh, uh, development of the individual towards knowledge of the ideas. Um, and then after this period, there's a, a third period in which we have the, the doctrine of the, um, of the Republic, in which the, uh, uh, the souls are um, sort of assigned to their places in the structure rather than being um, uh, subject to a development or a dynamism. Okay, let's go on to um, the next page. Um, might be, well, might be able to fit in two more, I think. Uh, where did we leave off again? Um, at the top of uh, 454 uh, in the PDF. So that's, um, but the first image of the of the intelligible. So 456, uh, next line is yet this detachment. Okay. Um, yet this detachment of the sensible is possible due to the great law of universal paradigmatism that turns the structure of the sensible into the analog of the structure of the world of ideas. It is precisely through this schematism of analogical participation that Parmenides contributes a decisive critique. If several things participate in the same idea, the idea cannot be separated from itself in order to be in each of the things, or to be in them partly, because then the rapport of the total idea to the parts of the idea is inconceivable. We see here that the idea is treated like a Parmenidian being, which is singular and homogeneous, consequently indivisible, i.e. complete in each of its parts. Parmenidian being is strictly imparticipable, imparticipable because it has no clusis and is not an element, properly speaking. Furthermore, the unity of the idea above the multiplicity of the terms that participate in this idea is impossible because in order to guarantee the participation of multiple things in a single idea, there must be another idea above the ensemble formed by the multiple things that participate in the idea in which they participate. The difficulty that Plato encounters by wanting to remain faithful to the Parmenidian conception of being, of being consists in the impossibility of conceiving any relation that would not be a being, that would not be endowed with characteristics of indivisible and static individuality that Parmenidian being represents. Consequently, the relation of participation can only be grasped as a supplementary being added to the system formed by the idea and the realities that participate in the idea. This process of position of new beings for constituting the relation between participant and participated goes to infinity. Moreover, it is not necessary, not a necessary result of the unicity of the idea of the multiplicity of things that participate. The difficulty would be the same with a single participating being. What requires this position of an infinity of beings is in fact the individualized static and separate being, which comes from Parmenides. Participation presents such difficulties because Parmenidian being does not include relation within it. Here, the multiplicity of things only intervenes to require the exteriority of the idea. Once the exteriority of the idea is posited, the indefinite reduplication of beings 
arises only from this exteriority and not from the multiplicity of beings that participate. The argument could apply to the relation between a single thing and the idea in which it participates. The third man argument, which we find in Aristotle, which aims for a separated character of the idea, depends on the same foundation as the one that Plato establishes against his own theory of participation in the Parmenides. The relation of resemblance is powerless to resolve this problem, even if the relation of part to whole is replaced with that of portrait to model. In order for there to be resemblance, there must be participation idea, which leads back to the previous case. Ultimately, knowledge cannot be explained by the relation of participation, for there is an incompatibility between the nature of the idea and its existence within us when it is known. A reality in itself may be known by a science in itself within which we do not partake. Here again, the point of view is the same. The relation that knowledge is incompatible with the idea envisioned as permanent in being. The being is deprived of physis and does not have a power of relation or production within it. The being is a static individual, an absolute individual, and consequently imparticipable. Right. So I mentioned earlier this third man argument um, that, that Aristotle makes in the metaphysics uh, against Plato's doctrine of the ideas. Uh, and so the argument is essentially that if you, if you take it that um, what all men share, what makes all men to be men, is uh, their participation in the idea of man uh, or manhood, um, then you, you can raise the question, what is it that all men share with the idea of man? Um, there, there has to be something that is common or shared between uh, existing men and the idea of man if they, um, if they sort of correspond to each other. Um, and then if, if um, if they share something, then that means they have to participate in some sort of third idea of like meta manhood or something like that, um, that would um, unify the idea with the entities that participate in it. Uh, and then, of course, you would have you can ask the same question. So, what is what is it that unifies this meta manhood with the the idea of manhood and uh, the individual men and so on, um, you have this infinite regress of um, uh, ideas of ideas of ideas. Um, and uh, so Simon Don takes it here that, um, that Plato himself um, presents a similar argument in the Parmenides um, uh, against his own doctrine of the ideas. And uh, um, he takes it that um, this is a sort of um, Refutation of the Parmenidean conception of being as um, this sort of static and uh, self-contained unity, um, and so we have to have a doctrine of relation which doesn't reduce or identify relation with being, um, because then we, if we, if we have a, a Parmenidean conception which just uh, takes being to be this sort of static and self-contained whole. Um, then each uh, attempt at identifying a relation just ends up producing a new being, which we then have to uh, try to relate again to the original, uh, the original being. Um, uh, and so we have to have a conception of being in which um, relation has, uh, has the status of being, uh, is how he puts it in the uh, introduction to 
to volume one. Um, and, and so this, um, the argument of the Parmenides, um, the, uh, the dialogue, the Parmenides refutes the, the Parmenidean conception of being uh, in which relation is only ever understood as, as being more being. Uh, and so we have to have a, an understanding of relation as such as, um, as having the status of being. Okay, uh, let's read one more page and then we'll uh, shut it down for the day. Um, so, yeah, I can read this next page. As a theory of knowledge, the Theotetus reveals the same difficulty relative to relation. Against Heraclitus and Protagoras, Plato refuses to see in sensation the relation of an agent to a patient that would be valid. Sensation and sensible quality which arise from this relation are nothing without one another and are not stable. No quality is a reality in itself. Consequently, to know is not to feel. But to know also cannot be to judge, for there is no relation between knowledge and ignorance, since there is no mediating reality between being and non-being. This mediating state that true opinion would be does not exist. True judgment is not science. Plato is opposed to the thesis of Antisthenes, who made of science the enumeration of the elements of which reality is composed and the way they are grouped. Nevertheless, Plato does not want a science that would be a knowledge of the rapport between terms that would themselves be unknown. This relation, which would not have its raison d'être in the terms and would not result from the nature of the juxtaposed elements, cannot be thought. The only acceptable relation would be a relation founded in being, but the Parmenides establishes the impossibility of a, of a relation that would not be a being. The second part of the Parmenides opens a new path that is longer than that of uh, participation in being, but that of relation such as hypothetical research discovers it. There is relation of a hypothesis to a consequence, and this relation is that of the attributes that can be given to a subject. We can therefore wonder what are the most general attributes that can be granted or refused to any subject whatsoever, whole and part, beginning, middle, and end, straight and circular, in something else, or uh, sorry, in something else and in itself, mobile and immobile, same and other, similar and dissimilar, equal and unequal, younger or the same age. These categories are not categories prepared in advance for research. These categories are veritable relations, for they increasingly arise from demonstration, like a mathematical figure whose properties are discovered based on a consequence that is also a reconstruction. Relation becomes, without participation of being, it is interior to being. This indicates that being is no longer Parmenidean being, an, an absolute individual that consists in its individuality. Whether we hypothesize that the one is or the one is not, we are led to affirm and then deny about the one as well as, as things other than the one, all the couples of contraries. Knowledge will merely have to limit this indefinite fruitfulness of the relation between ideas. The inconceivable relation between ideas and things is replaced by, with the relation between idea and idea. Participation will be replaced with the communication of ideas. The sophist shows that a thing cannot be defined in itself. It can only be defined by relation. That which wholly is, is opposed to the multiplicity of Phaedo's isolated and fixed ideas. That which wholly is, has intelligence, life, and soul, but is at rest and completely changeless even though it's alive. Being contains both the force to act and to be acted upon. Being limited by itself is too poor. Being includes not just the idea or object that is known, but the subject that knows it, the intelligence and soul within which relation is incorporated. Relation, such as it appears in the sophist as a sort of table of categories, should not be considered as a simple aspect of the mind. It is real, and we see these categories in some way become various elements in the Timaeus. Uh, and so then he, so here he's um, comparing the development in the Parmenides that we just discussed with the development in the Theodotus, um, having to do with knowledge. Um, 
and so in that uh, in that dialogue um the uh true knowledge or or knowledge in itself is uh opposed to um uh right opinion um so having having the correct opinion about something is not knowledge in the the true sense of the term um and uh um in order to have true knowledge you have to have a a sort of grasp of something in a way that is not um uh is not required for correct opinion um and so the, there's a necessity of um uh teachability so you have to be able to teach someone else your your knowledge in order to truly know something um as opposed to having the correct opinion about something which you not you might not necessarily be able to teach um and then he Simon Dong here passes to what he calls the, the second part of the Parmenides, um, where he takes it that um, it's not it's not just a, a question of refuting the doctrine of participation, like in the earlier part, but of depicting uh, a new um, relationship of ideas um, to each other. So um, these ideas form uh, categories. Um, so these are uh, sort of primordial ideas or um, ideas that um, structure the whole realm of ideas. Uh, and we see this in the Sophist. He gives um, a list of five categories, um, which I don't uh, remember exactly what they are. Um, but um, he, uh, uh, one of the sort of key doctrines of the Sophist is that um, there's uh, a sort of intermingling of being and non-being. Um, so that um, um, you you have to say of entities that are also that they are not uh, in some sense, uh, and so this is um, uh, in opposition to the earlier doctrine of the ideas um, as presented in the Parmenides uh, in the, the beginning of the Parmenides and this notion of participation, uh, in which there's no sort of middle term between being and non-being. Okay, uh, so we're pretty much at time. Um, so let's stop here for today and we'll pick up um, from the middle of 456 in the PDF. It's probably 458 or so, I guess, in the uh, printed book. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Uh, okay. So, yeah, thanks for joining today and uh, see you all next week. Thanks, Don. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.